Hey, thank you so much for checking out today's video. I'm Pastor Matt, this is Pastor Adrienne, and we pray this message blesses you and encourages you all throughout your week. Absolutely. For any more information on how to be praying with us or to become a part of our community or to give, please head on over to takeovergr.com. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Good morning. Good morning, y'all. Is it so good to be in the house of the Lord? So good. I'm seeing some faces I haven't seen in a minute, guys. It's so good to see you. Um, this morning, we had a little bit of a blast from the past. One of our youth students um, is visiting today, and he's about three times taller than the last time I saw him. Um, when he used to hug me, it was like around here, and now he's like up here. Colin, we're so grateful that you're with us. You have grown into an incredible young man, and thank you for blessing us with your presence this morning. Can we put our hands together? God is always working. He's always working. Colin was kind enough to tell me that I, I haven't aged at all. So God bless you. God bless you. Ah, oh, thanks, guys. Thanks. Um, when I, it's true, you were there. You were there. Um, as we are going through this series, this is, this is just such a, such a singular time in history. I think that we are, we're seeing some things that are becoming normalized in our culture in our lives, in our society that previous generations never, ever would have imagined would have become the norm. And I believe that there are things taking place right now that our children will have to wrestle with in coming days because the church, when it should have spoken, it was silent. Who knows, takeover is not going to be silent, right? Right? Okay, we can clap for that. When Christians should have leaned in, they chose comfort over friction. They chose ignorance over conviction, and they chose tolerance over truth. We're going to be people of truth. Amen? And I think the series, Jesus People and Citizens of Heaven, is so incredibly necessary for right now. Because in large part, I think God's people who have forgotten the power that they have in him and the strong tower that he is for us. Do you hear me, people? Good, good, good. As we call it the characteristics of a believer in this series, we as a shepherd of this church, as the Holy Spirit corrects all of us, as he changes, as he transforms, as he works within us, we change to look more like the citizens of heaven every day. I believe that we are not only equipping ourselves in this time, but we are equipping the generations to come. Amen? I mentioned to a few people this week that I was going to be preaching on the topic of, of bitterness. And actually, I guess the reality is, is that I'm going to be talking about one of the fruits that you would find within the citizen of heaven. And that fruit is the fruit of forgiveness. My message title, because I know you are all taking notes studiously. Amber's got her phone. She ready. Message of my title is How They Forgive. Instead of the creed today, which is beautiful, by the way, I want to pray a salvation prayer this morning and just take a moment to center ourselves before the Lord. Can we do that? All right, close your eyes and just repeat after me. Lord God, I believe in who you are. I believe in the power of the great creator. Your ability to mend, heal, Make whole all of creation. Forgive me for ever hiding, ever doubting, 
ever being afraid to come before you. You are the one true God, now and forever. Big enough for my pain, good enough to hear my cry. I commit myself to you, crucify my shadow man, crucify my flesh. Invoke your Holy Spirit within me. I am yours. You are mine. I live to serve you. Amen. 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 <laughs> Crucify my flesh. Wow, that's not heavy or intense at all, is it? But it's true. It doesn't sound pleasant. However, in the Christian life, we must kill that shadow man that flesh that seeks to rebel against the goodness of God. We must take those things that want to disobey and we must allow them to be crucified on the cross with Christ. Lust, ambition, lying, hiding, anger, hatred, resentment, fear, and bitterness, it all must die. You hear me, people? Bitterness is not a fruit of the Spirit, y'all. Amen? No, how, no matter how many desperate housewives or pretty little liars or gossip girls seek to tell us otherwise, it is not a fruit of the Spirit. Bitterness is to the soul what cancer is to the body. We're going to be serious here today. This is a serious, serious thing that we're talking about. And our culture has worked very hard on normalizing how we feel about bitterness with shows like that or sanitizing it by calling it a chip on our shoulder or a grudge, and that's just not the case. It doesn't sound as deadly when we say, oh, she just has a chip on her shoulder. It is a weed that has been seeded over that person's soul and must be pulled up immediately, or they're going to be looking at a very deadly garden of unrepentant sin. Unforgiveness, bitterness, is unrepentant sin. Did we all know that this morning? Unrepentant, unrepentant sin, unforgiveness is unrepentant sin. And I don't think that we all acknowledge that all the time. I think that if we think we struggle with bitterness or unforgiveness, it's just something we're working on, but it's actually unrepentant sin that we need to bring before the Lord. Amen? Not forgiving a person is a sin against our creator. And I know that that is intense, but just hang with me, okay? As the Lord started to draw me towards this message of all the people in the Bible that he could have just pinpointed me towards, the one person he had on my heart was Judas Iscariot. Everybody groans. Oh, yeah, that's the guy. That's the guy. It's like, really? The dude is the worst. He's the worst. Nobody wants to preach on this guy. He's the man who betrayed the Son of God, the one who tipped the scales and made the whole thing happen, the man who murdered our Savior. And as he began to study and pray and wrestle with what I was going to be learning, the Lord dropped real-life situations into my life as I was preparing this message. Doesn't he just do that? He's so good. He's not just going to teach you and not give you a place to apply that. There's always room for application with God. Hopefully that shows that this is just as much for me as it is for anybody else. You hear me, people? Yes? 
In Ephesians 4.31, it says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Bitterness can interchangeably be used with words like resentment, rancor, animosity, hatred, jealousy, all of it, unforgiveness. Bitterness is often caused by people or situations that have hurt us, both real and perceived, right? Sometimes there's perceived hurt. It's real. I'm going to make the case today that both bitterness towards both situations, real or perceived, they are both dangerous. I'm going to tell you today that the terminus for bitterness is death. It is so deadly to have in our lives today that one author I recently read believes that bitterness is the one thing that is holding back revival in the church today. When we're talking about Jesus and Judas, I might interchangeably use their names. So if I accidentally say Judas and I mean Jesus, just shout at me, okay? Um, What happened that led Jesus to the cross? It is important to keep in mind that Jesus was perfect. He never did anything that wronged anyone. And yet... Judas was so consumed with offense and bitterness, he willingly gave over the savior of the world to suffer the most painful death imaginable. How does it happen? How does a person get to that point with the savior of the world? They act so completely irrational, they have no understanding of the evil that they are actually perpetrating because they are so wound up in bitterness. So before I get started, Let me just set the stage and say that there's a lot that went on before we get to the story of Judas Iscariot. And if you're like me and you just had read the Bible, there's about 400 years that are missing between the New Testament and the Old Testament, right? So when Jesus comes along, I was always like, where did these Romans come from? Like, what the heck? Where where were they before? I had had no idea. The little bit of studying I'm going to tell you guys some stuff that maybe you know, maybe you don't know. Who's ready for history with Pastor Adrian? Yes? Okay, Angie's hand was the first one up. So, in the Old Testament, we know that the Jewish people were called to be the people of God. They were called to be set up as a great nation. They were his people. He had set them apart from everyone else. He he wanted to be their king, and he wanted to bless them and take care of them. From almost the onset, the Jewish people rebelled, as we know. They wanted their own king. They wanted to do things their own way. They wanted to be their own people. They were disobedient. And this leads to years and years of slavery, war, a nation in ruins, and under the power of others. In 336 BC, so this is between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Alexander the Great conquers Jerusalem. There's a photo. As many of you know, Alexander the Great was a Greek king, warrior king and ruler. He spent most of his life fighting and campaigning and creating a vast empire that stretched from Macedonia to Egypt, from Greece to a part of India. And when Alexander took Jerusalem, you can see here, he was, he's kneeling, that's him kneeling. He was really respectful of the Jewish people. I think he had heard of them. He had probably heard of the incredible things that their God had accomplished through them. He honored them, he was respectful to them, and in turn, they respected him as much as one can, a conqueror, right? However, Alexander's rule was short-lived, and very soon, others rose to power, and oppression, fierce oppression of the Jewish people, 
began. I don't have time to teach all of this. I wish I did. Maybe I'll do it on Wednesday. But history says that they were forced to worship and sacrifice to other gods. They were not allowed to have Sabbath. They were not allowed to do any of the, any of the things that the Lord had said, this is holy, this is set apart, like circumcision. They were not allowed to eat just the food that God had deemed clean. They were being forced to eat unclean food, which is a major, major thing when it comes to holiness and remaining clean and being able to come before the one true God. It was pretty, it was bad. Pretty much the Jews had rebelled in many ways before, but those who wanted to serve God at this point were not being able to serve him. They were being led into and forced into sinful situations. There comes a breaking point and one of the Jewish families rebels, says no. These are the Maccabees. We have the rise of the Maccabees. And they, there's a bloody onslaught that takes place. You can see photo two. There it is. They fight back the Greeks. They take back the temple. And they, they, this is actually where the story of Hanukkah takes place, which again, I don't have time to talk about it. So later, okay, later. Um, the Jews are victorious warriors. Yay, everybody get excited. Woo! They have won back their freedom. And there is 129 years of Jewish independence that comes to pass, which I can only imagine. I mean, how thrilled would they be? It, it's incredible. It's an incredible thing. And at the end, they all live happily ever after. Right, Hamza? No, just making sure you're awake. Actually, what happens next is civil war breaks out. These guys, they gain peace, they, they fight back their enemies, and then civil war. The Jewish people are divided in half. One side of the Jewish people seeks help from Rome. Says, help us, help us overwhelm the other side, and we will we'll work better with you. Instead, Rome's like, yeah, no way. They assimilate that side completely, and then the next five months, they fight the other side until they completely take over, and then Rome has complete political control over Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Next, chosen season one. That's where it begins. No, I'm kidding. But really, truly, Jesus is born into the situation that we see where Romans have the rule. When we see the mob and Judas betray and destroy Jesus, they are currently living in defeat. You tracking with me? You tracking? When we talk about bitterness, bitterness can be an offense of someone actually wounding us, but it can also be a situation that wasn't meant to hurt us, but it did. It can be unmet expectations going unrealized. And in Matthew 21, 6, it said, Jesus went, and the disciples went and did what Jesus had directed them. They brought back a donkey and a colt and put their cloaks on it. He sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their, cloaks, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the ground. And the crowds that went before him and followed him shouting, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And he rode into the city. When I close my eyes and I see Jesus riding into the city on the back of a donkey and people taking off their cloaks and, and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means pray, Lord, save us. Pray, Lord, save us. I have to realize that the same people who are crying out that in just a couple chapters later are crying out, crucify him, crucify him. 
I set the stage with the Maccabees so you can see what they were expecting of Jesus to come when he did come as their savior, as a conqueror. They were expecting a warrior king to again save them. Bitterness changes the way that we act, changes the way we think, changes the things we do and why. In this situation, I can very plainly see the expectation of who Jesus would be went unmet. Offense came, germinated, and its roots grew deep into madness. I think the Jews and his disciples, for that matter, had anticipated Jesus coming with a sword and fire and power and destruction in his wake. A warrior Jew, just like the Maccabees. But God had already done that so many times and it had never worked to win over his people, right? We've read the Old Testament. We know how that goes. When Jesus healed instead of killed, when he forgave instead of punishing, when he turned the other cheek instead of fighting, I think there's one of two thoughts that they could have had. This man is God or this man is not God. If we pause here and I ask you how often you get offended and you just thought for a second, rarely, sometimes, every dang day, where do you fall? Where do you fall on the gamut of offense? What if I told you that God had designed us differently to be able to let go of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, to put it away from us along with malice? that you would actually live a life offense-free. Doesn't that sound good? Offense-free? Sounds kind of crazy. Just wait. When you're hurt by someone, the feeling and the pain that you feel is real. When the hurt settles into offense, and with that offense you choose to hold it against the person who has hurt you, that offense then turns into unforgiveness and you throw wide the door for bitterness. Bitterness is something that is dramatically underestimated, like I said before, in our culture. We're living amidst cancel culture right now. What is that? Unforgiveness, bitterness, offense. People think that bitterness can be contained in just one area of their life. They can just keep it in one single area. They are deadly, deadly wrong. Bitterness is soul cancer. Bitterness is necrotizing with a god-awful stench. It touches every part of our lives. We fool ourselves when we think that it's just in one area. It's touching every part of our lives. Last week, Pastor Matt preached about Mary and Martha and it was amazing. If you haven't heard it, you need to go back and listen to that. It was amazing. And that we need to be focused on the one thing, the one thing being Jesus. And the whole situation was that Mary was being the Christian that we're called to be, worshiping at the feet of Jesus. And her sister Martha got offended because she was cooking alone, <laughs> which turned into bitterness and unforgiveness towards Mary. And we're called to be Martha not Mary. Mary, not Martha. Thanks, guys. See, I told you it was going to happen. You're on it. You're on it. I know you're listening. Mary was a true worshiper of God. 
We're talking about when people being forgiven much, loving much, Mary is the poster child. Yes? She comes up again not long after this first greeting or this first occasion with Mary and Martha. Photo three, John 12. Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas, one of his disciples, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what, what they put in it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the, you, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I think this passage Again, we see Mary, the worshipful Christian that we're called to be, but this time the juxtaposition is not her and Martha, but her and Judas. Mary sees a priceless gift, and Judas, at this point, already consumed with bitterness, only sees the natural worth of something being wasted on someone he has started to believe is not the Son of God. I think this moment is a tipping point for Judas. Now, when I try to put my play, myself in Judas's place, not much is known about uh, Judas. He was thought to be one of the only 12 that was a Judean. Um, he was thought to be good with money in the natural, which um, means he was probably really bad with money in the supernatural. Um, he was worshiping the flesh. He was taking whatever he wanted. His, his heart was, was ugly and corrupt. You can see him right there. Look at that sass. Oh my gosh, that sass little... Judas. But he had become bitter. He was seeing the miraculous. The blind were seeing, the leprous were healed. Jesus was teaching. It was incredible. There was a dead guy sitting in that room for Pete's sake. And all he can think about is the money being wasted on Jesus, who would soon be put to death and, and arise into heaven complete dissatisfaction. Do I think Judas, like many, thought Jesus would come with a sword and freedom? Yes, I do. I think that many thought he would come and he would destroy Rome and set the Jewish people free. And every day that Judas looked at Jesus, he saw a lamb when he thought he'd see a lion. He saw a lamb when he thought he'd see a lion. And the bitterness in his heart grew more and more. In this situation, there was no harm done. But it's easier to relate to situations where people have deeply, deeply wounded us. Yes? Yes? For bitterness to become valid. We feel that bitterness becomes valid when we have been deeply wounded. However, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 38... And I'm going to skip around in here. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. And it goes on to say in 43, you have heard 
that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. And then in 48, it says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And I think these are the most challenging words for me personally that Christ ever spoke. He's not talking about tolerance. He's not talking about being a victim. He's talking about such overwhelmingly supernatural forgiveness that you won't even feel the pain when you're hurt or offended anymore. What would it look like to operate on such a high level of grace for us? We would be like God by being like Jesus. And it sounds like these are unreal expectations. Like, I get it, okay? I'm human. This is a big, big thing for me. But what if we filtered our forgiveness through the belief that our God is victorious and that he sees every sacrifice that we make and he might just be around the corner with an even greater portion for us than what we feel like we just lost? Think of someone who in your life has hurt you. Real hurt or again that perceived hurt. Have you forgiven that person? Do you remember specific details about the hurt that you experienced? Even to this day, do you remember it? Then I would hazard to say, maybe that forgiveness has not been as complete as it could have been. And here's why. Roots of bitterness, they can go deep. They can go deep into our identity and they can kill parts of our lives that God has great, great plans. They can ruin relationships with the people that we love. One of the signs of unforgiveness or bitterness is remembering exactly what happened. Every movement, every motion, every word. Why do we remember it? We remember it because we've recited it again and again and again and again in our heads and in our hearts. It becomes a play that we were never meant to star in but we know every single line. Matt and I were talking as we were walking the other day and he was like, oh yeah, that's when you, we got that fight. And I was like, what was it about? And he was like, I don't know. And I was like, no, really, what was it about? And he was like, I don't know. It was like a week ago. Forgiveness can look like having a really bad memory, but it's not. It's a supernatural grace of God filling your heart and changing who you are. You hear me, people? All right. So what is the solution if we're noticing some of these things? One, repent to the Lord that you have, there's also a thing on, oh, there we go. Repent to the Lord that you have unforgiveness or that you've been holding offense and in the time it has caused bitterness. He will forgive us, but first we must confess, right? Yes, confession is good. Repentance is good. Number two, tell God, oh my goodness, I just baptized my thing in spit. Oh my goodness. Uh (laughs) Two, tell God how this has hurt you. He wants to hear. Ask him to help you extend forgiveness. Ask him to help you. He will help you. Number three, lastly, pray for those who have hurt you. Pray that they will come to know the God who has saved you and loves you the same way that you love him. 
and that the life-changing sacrifice would become as real to them as it is to you. Pray. I know people who have forgiven just unreal things. I know people who have forgiven everyday hurts. I know people who have forgiven the people who have raped them. I can't even imagine that. I know people who have forgiven adultery. I know people who have forgiven themselves for having an abortion. I know people who have forgiven racism, parents that failed them, and friends that have betrayed them. All painful. Some of those things we perceive as being harder to forgive, right? I'm telling you that with God, he can help us to supernaturally forgive. Not necessarily gaining freedom for them, gaining freedom for ourselves. Yes? He is perfect. And we can experience perfect forgiveness as well. It is a process. I'm not saying it's easy, okay? We're having this discussion to start a conversation. But it's required. You don't want to live with bitterness in your life. Some of you heard those things and you were like, I could never... I would never. And I just challenge you to think of how God forgives you. The grace that he extends you. Every time we've betrayed him, every time we've done what we want to do, every time that we said the sacrifice of Christ was not enough to drive us to our knees in repentance, he forgives the blood is sufficient. It covers it all. Do you hear me, people? Now think about some of the things I mentioned that you said, well, I could never. What if God forgave us the way that you did? What if when I came before God and I asked God, please forgive me for my rage and my anger, he said, well, I've heard that line before. What if he kept a tally? What if he did? I'm not saying that you have to hug these people who have hurt you. I'm not saying you have to buy a house and live next to them. Okay? I'm saying that on your end, within yourself, between you and God, you have to do everything that you can to forgive those that have hurt you. Amen? The number one thing holding back revival is bitterness. And we need to see revival come, do we not? What if we forgave like God? What if we were known by how we forgive? What if the, we were the first generation as a whole that got it right? Do you think that would change the world? I sure do. We need to stop sanitizing bitterness. Stop acting like this isn't one of the most deadly and poisonous things that we can let into our lives. Being in church leadership, I don't have to tell you, but I'm going to. It's hard, guys. The crushing is on like every single day. And you don't know this, some of you do, but I print out pictures of you guys gathering in this place and worshiping and I have them on my fridge so I can see your faces every day. <laughs> Not in a creepy way. And some of those pictures I look at and there are faces of people who we have bled for and stood for and sheltered who are not here anymore. We know the feeling of betrayal in spades and resentment and just abandonment. If I were to let that go deep down inside of me, 
and not praise God for this family that I have right now, for the experiences that he's led us through, if I let that hurt and offense go deep down inside of me, it would lead us to a loop of destruction so painful and so heretical that I would go down and everybody who followed me would go down the same path. I know that I'm called to more. Do you know that you're called to more? I was recently talking to someone about um, a, a betrayal that they had experienced. And they stood in a place where they hadn't done anything wrong. But they were at a place where they could choose. They were being deeply affected by what had happened. But they had the opportunity to extend an olive branch to this person. They were in a place um, where they had not done the offending, but they could push forward the forgiveness and say, I forgive you, I love you, and I believe that healing can come. And while I was trying to convince this person that it could be done, you could forgive this person without them coming to you and asking for forgiveness, um, they were concerned about the cost of forgiveness. Does that resonate with anybody? That forgiveness might have a cost. And we talked about what it ultimately comes down to is that there's no cost beyond humility and pride. Pride is something that you can live without, right? We don't want pride. And humility is something that you will never regret growing in. It's a prayer that I pray every day, humble me, Lord, and he will. Jesus took every wound on his back so that we wouldn't have to. And I often think about that. When I feel the pain, he felt it first. Don't be too proud to extend grace and let forgiveness flow. And when this person did, it was an incredible, incredible thing. Amazing, amazing movement of God. Maybe the person that hurt you is your dad. Maybe that person is your child. Maybe that person is your spouse. Or maybe you even feel bitter towards God. That can happen too. Some might say, well, I'm waiting for that person to come and ask for forgiveness. Why drink poison every day while you wait for somebody to come and ask for forgiveness when that day might not even come, right? Amen? Death might come between you and them, and then what are you going to do? Some dead guy's not going to come say, can you forgive me? You can't stand in a place where hating them. Who does that poison? It poisons you, not them. Bitterness is like a pet that people like to keep in the darkness of their shadow man, and they like to return to it and make excuses for it and feed it and soothe themselves that their pain and their unforgiveness and bitterness is valid. And it's not. It's a sin. Bitterness is not a cute little black bulldog that, with no teeth that sits innocuously in the corner of your mind. It's a malignancy that eats away at your soul. It eats away at your insides until it starts coming out and showing up on the outside. Do you hear me, people? Sorry. My mouth is super dry. I don't know where the saliva is coming from. We all know what I'm talking about. We know those people that we see them and we're like, Whoa. immediately, we know that they are peppered to the core with bitterness. It's in the way they move, the way they look, the way they talk. They've been consumed from the inside to the outside. 
we avoid them. They're hard to talk to. They're hard to live with, yes? Don't be that person. Don't, don't be like them. That's what this conversation is about. There's one place that that road leads, and that, that place is death. The situation described in John 12, 5, with Mary anointing Jesus and Judas getting bent over what he considered waste, is at the, it is this moment where Jesus decides to betray Christ. As we know, he goes to the Jewish priests, Jewish priests, who at this time were looking for any moment to arrest Jesus. They wanted to do it and not like have a mob situation. They need to get him before the authorities. Of the 300 denarii that Judas had said that they could get for that perfume, all he collected was 10% of that. 30 pieces of silver from the Jewish leadership for agreeing to betray Christ. I see this as some inside out reversal of the Levitical priesthood who would in turn receive 10% for tending to the temple and, and coming before God for themselves and for their service. And now Judas receives 10%. Only he has entered the priesthood of Satan. In Luke, it says that Satan actually entered Judas. I think what this ultimately means is that instead of having the Holy Spirit within us, directing us, bitterness makes room for a different kind of spiritual force to set up camp and start convincing us of things that are not of God. Amen? We just had a night on spiritual warfare on Wednesday. Zach did a great job. I encourage you to go listen to it. This is what we're talking about. When Jesus was at the Last Supper and he looked at Judas and he knew that Judas had already betrayed him in his heart. I think that when he looked at Judas, there was love in his eyes. I think Jesus loved Judas so much. I think he looked at Judas and he forgave Judas. And I think he prayed for redemption. I think all of the disciples felt some level of hurt when Jesus said he would leave them and devastated when he ultimately did. I think they could have chosen to witness the death of Christ, be deeply impacted by his leaving and let bitterness consume them. In one such, such case, you could be the perpetrator of pain and choose to hold unforgiveness against yourself. The person I'm talking about in this case is Peter. In Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when, he turned, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Until you deny that you, three times that you know me. Even Peter who denied Christ not once, but three times after Jesus' arrest, could have walked away in his shame, in his unforgiveness of self, and never achieved what he ultimately would, which was becoming the, the, what did I, the rock that Jesus would build his church upon. There it is. It was spoken over him by Jesus. When you turn again, when you return when you turn back to Christ, you will strengthen your brothers. Could Judas have not have done the same thing? What a redemptive story that would have been, right? 
guy betrays the savior of the world, returns, comes before the face of God, asks for forgiveness, becomes a champion of Christ. We'll never know. We'll never know. After the betrayal, Judas realizes that he has betrayed the only man who has ever loved him, who has only ever healed and taught and been a light in a devastatingly dark world. Bitterness had consumed Judas, and ultimately it led him to this place called Akeldama, which translates as the field of blood. As you know, in history tells, he tries to give back the silver, he tries to give back the payment to the Jewish leadership for betraying Christ, and they can't take it because it's blood money. And he flees to Akeldama, the field of blood, and in his grief, he hangs himself. In photo four, it's not gruesome, but you can kind of get the look. You can see the devastation on Judas's face. In one of the Gospels, you'll read that his body, after he hangs himself, actually falls on the ground and bursts open and his intestines fly out. And I was always like, oh my word. Because it's only in the one gospel. And I was like, Luke, what the heck? Was this guy so evil that immediately after hanging himself, he just exploded? Like, that couldn't be. The reality is, is that Judas hung for so long in that tree, undiscovered, that his body putrefied and ultimately gave way to gravity and he just fell apart. He was so consumed with bitterness that in the end, no one came looking for him. Not a mother, not a father, not a friend. He had driven everyone away and he died alone. Bitterness will lead to death within ourselves and death within our lives that we cannot even imagine. I look at Judas and I think, that could be us. That could be us without dramatic change. Do you hear me, people? We must be centering ourselves and praying every day, all day, for those who have wounded us and put forward that sacrificial love and grace and forgiveness that we are called to. That, anything else but that, leads us to that spiritual field of blood. God has more for you. Do you want more today? If you wouldn't mind standing, closing your eyes and bowing your heads and the worship team can come up. We're just going to close our eyes for a moment and I'm going to pray over all of us. If I can have a couple of the core leaders come up to the front here. We're going to open up the altar during this last song for life-altering prayer. And I encourage you right now to not miss this opportunity. If you even have a gitchy feeling in the back of your mind that there's someone that you haven't forgiven, someone maybe recently that's wounded you, maybe somebody that wounded you a long time ago, Maybe it's a mother that you love desperately and all she's done your whole life is just boss you around. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's betrayal. Maybe it's a father you never see anymore. 
but you want to extend that grace and forgive them between you and God and be completely set free. Holy Spirit, we welcome you in. We welcome you into this place, into our hearts, our minds, and our extremely messy lives. God, please right now, begin to gently reveal the areas in our lives where we have unforgiveness towards others or even ourselves. If there is a root of bitterness right now in the name of Jesus, we repent. Say it with me. Lord, I repent. Lord, I repent. God, please begin right now to pull up the roots of bitterness that have grown down into our spirits, dampening our awareness of you, corrupting the very work of our hands, twisting up our character inside. We release forgiveness in this moment. Holy Spirit, invade and enlighten our minds and hearts to your perfect, perfect will. Make us like you, Lord. Let us see with new eyes. Let us forgive like citizens of heaven. Amen, amen, amen. The altar is open for prayer. Come and receive prayer and freedom in Jesus' name.